Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from Italy Beyond the Obvious. Planning a dream trip to Italy? Don't go without exploring italybeyondtheobvious.com. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And, and today... today... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just I just walked on Katie's line there. <laughs> so the reason I kind of jumped in is because today I, I have something that's been sort of on my mind that I wanted to just talk with you about and uh, get your take on. Because it has to do with, you know, living abroad, but it also has to do with what's happening back home. Yeah. So what's weighing on your mind? All right. Well, you know all the craziness going on in U.S. Yes. politics right now. Impeachment trials, etc. We don't have to go into the details. The whole thing, generally, you know, since Trump took office, all the crazy stuff that he does, mm-hmm. we won't rehash the details. You know, I'm sure, listening. Read a paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, my daily life revolves around Italians. I spend the majority, the vast majority of my time with Italians. And I spent a lot of time with my colleagues at work. You know, they they can't stand Trump. You know, they might not know the details of what's going on. They don't probably follow it very closely. They know a couple, like like maybe the way we would feel about Boris Johnson. We know he's crazy, but do we really know exactly why? Yeah. Do we know how crazy? Exactly. So (laughs) ever since these crazy things have been happening, I will tend to go into work if something really bad has happened, like the past 24 hours something really just like that blows your mind, which sadly happens more and more. I'll go in, I'll start talking with my colleagues about it. And of course, I have to explain to them what's happening and kind of go into detail because they don't know. And I have noticed the reaction that I get. It's never as strong as it would be for, I think, an American. Hmm. I just feel like they kind of shrug. It's kind of like, uh, and specifically anything that has to do with corruption, mm-hmm. they just shrug it. Like they know, they agree it's wrong. Yes, definitely not good. But they kind of roll their eyes at my naivete for thinking that a politician would not do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, like that corruption is sort of a given. It's like a part of the job. A given, exactly. Or the job corrupts. Even if it's not a part of the job, over time, you would become corrupt. I do know that even here in the States, I mean, I'm not totally idealistic. I know that corruption happens in politics, not just Trump. I know it happens on both sides of the aisle. But I feel that usually when it happens, if it comes out, it gets dealt with and it's not accepted. And people get removed from office or they get voted out or they lose, you know, or they get prosecuted. And, you know, generally corruption isn't tolerated. Or they step down. Yeah. Or they step down. Yeah. I mean, I feel like here corruption is just part of life. And you wish it, you know, it's the kind of thing where, oh, I wish they didn't do that. But there's nothing that I can do that's going to change that. And I just started thinking about that. And I thought, you know, when did that change happen in Italy? Why is it that in Italy and, and obviously in other countries, too, Corruption is just considered part of the deal. So when does that change happen? And it really freaked me out because I thought, is that change going to happen here? 
here, I mean the States. Obviously, I'm not in the States right now. But yeah. So to clarify, for those of you who are new, Tiffany's actually in Rome right now. And I'm actually in the States. But she's sometimes in the States in her heart. Yeah, I mean, I'm feeling like, yeah, I'm in the States. I mean, I'm feeling very not Italian at the moment, because I, I can't, I can't quite wrap my mind around this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had a couple of things happen recently. One of the things, I mean, very small things, nothing big, but things that have just made me stop and think. And another thing that happened was, I just requested my absentee ballot. In, in my state, you have to re-register every year if you want to vote from abroad. So I always do that a couple months before the, the election. You only have to do it once a year, so I won't have to do it again before the November election. But anyway, I'm filling out the form, and as I was filling out the form, I'm putting in my name and, you know, middle initial and my street address in the States, which is my mom's address. And as I was writing her address, I was writing, like, you know, the abbreviated form of drive, for example. And I thought to myself, I remembered a story that I'd heard on the news from about a year ago when voters were being purged off of the voter rolls in something, I want to say Georgia, because they were writing their name or their address in a very slightly different way. Like they were writing street instead of ST, or they were writing, you know, number sign seven, or instead of apartment seven, you know, things like this. And I, and I know that that was a story about Georgia. But when I started writing that, I stopped and I thought to myself, what if I get kicked off the voter rolls? And what if I don't know? And what if my vote doesn't count? Is the very first time in my life that I've ever had the fear that my vote wouldn't count. Hmm. And it was like, it hit me. That is not something that we in a, you know, quote unquote democracy should ever have to question. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just really made me stop and think like, what, what is, is, Beyond the politics of a Trump that you might disagree with, okay, but what is changing like really fundamentally in terms of corruption and, you know, the right to vote? Are those things going to change in a drastic way? Have they, are they already changing? Hmm. I don't know. I don't want to be too dark on this episode. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Well, yeah, I mean, in thinking that is my vote not going to count? I mean, I think um, being a woman and only having the right to vote for, you know, what, 100 years or something like that, right? Uh-huh. Is it more dramatic to think that because you've been away so long, you could be purged from the voter rolls on a technicality or um, that you really feel like your vote, particularly right now, is extremely important? So like if it was purged now versus like, say, purged when you first got to Rome and, and uh, you know, it was the... Bush era or something. Uh, does it matter more now? Oh, absolutely. It it definitely feels like it matters more, specifically because I vote in Arizona. And Arizona is a state that is a toss-up state. And we have a very, very good chance of voting out the Republican senator and, you know, getting another Democrat in. Two years ago, I voted, I was one of the people who voted in Senator Cinema we have a good chance of voting for the Democratic president as well, uh, the Democratic candidate. And so I do feel like, and I think that this election, beyond just where I'm voting, this election matters hugely. So did the last one, but this one even more so. And and so I, I it, yeah, it worries me, but it worries me more than just 
the thought of this one election. It really worries me in a bigger way, in a sort of like, is the vote no longer guaranteed in my country? Is corruption no longer something that's not tolerated in my country? Like, it, it's like kind of a crisis of identity. And I actually was talking to my one of my colleagues about that just the other day because as Americans, we are raised to believe, whether it's right or wrong, I, I don't necessarily think you should raise American children this way, but like it or not, it's how we were raised at least, to think that our country was the best country in the world. And it was the freest country. And it was the country with the most opportunity. And it was the country with the, you know, the fairest country. I think that was one of, the, one of the things that really was hard for me. To me, America has always been, in my head, a fair place. And the, the place that, that stands up for what's right. And when those things start to fall away, you start to have a crisis of identity as an American. And I think that you growing up in Italy where you're kind of like, I mean, I hear my father-in-law, who's, in a sense, a patriotic Italian, adores his country, would never live anywhere else. He says things like, oh, this is a, this is a, I can't, I don't want to use an expletive, so I'll say it in Italian, è un paese di merda. Like, he says it all the time about Italy. And it's just much more common in Italy and probably lots of other countries to, like, just, just badmouth your own country, just talk down. Because you weren't raised that it's this sacred thing like your mother or something that you can't ever insult or the Pope or I don't know, not the Pope. The Pope doesn't even count like God, <laughs> you know, something that, you know, if it's your religion, your God, like you can't, you can't ever talk bad about it. And Italians just aren't like that. Right. So they are a little more pragmatic about where they are. They're a little more, their eyes are a little more open about the problems in their country. They just, they don't have that sense of like, oh, it's sacred, you know, the country is sacred, mm -hmm. that we as Americans have this blind patriotism. And so I think when, you know, the scales sort of fall from your eyes, or not even that they fall, but that like things actually start changing and you, you start to see things happening in your country that you never thought would happen, like immigrants getting caged. It's, it, for example, just one thing, mm -hmm. it hurts, you know, it's like when you discover that you're mother did something like was a murderer or something you know it's just like <laughs> you don't not when if <laughs> um, when everybody is about to find that out if, <laughs> if you just if you were to discover that your father you know had another family yeah, you yeah. know something bad you wouldn't want to believe it. It's tricky, though, because I think that, yes, that culturally we've always been told it's the greatest country in the world, but I don't think that that would be necessarily the experience of all the racial groups. And and historically, and I'm no historian, so I'm not going to even pretend that I know a lot about this stuff, is that, you know, groups uh, have been marginalized all throughout the decades trying to suppress their votes. So it's not necessarily new. Yeah. It really just depends on like what group you're in. And, you know, you've become more of a, an outsider. It's harder for you to prove that something, I don't know, maybe. But like part of the reason why the, the U.S. census is so important or why these, these um, nonprofit groups are working so hard right now to like identify and rally like the Native American groups in urban areas and working so hard to get everybody counted it's basically in part for the vote so that people actually get their votes counted as well that they don't become this invisible class that doesn't get to vote 
all the redistricting and all that stuff is all moving parts around to affect how much a person's vote matters. And that's been happening, you know, over along racial oh. lines for generations. And so I think there's equally these movements that are trying to correct it. Yeah. As you feel that, I think you're also seeing these groups and these get out the vote movements that are really trying to change that so that people do count more than they did or that they do even if they did count and they weren't voting, they now know that it's much more important for them to vote. At least that's the hope. So yeah, I think it's like both. I think it's like a tidal thing. Like there's always been these groups that have been trying to be held off and marginalized when it comes to voting in the United States, including women, including freed slaves, you know, all those different groups over time have, there's always been somebody that's been trying to be held down. Yeah. So I don't know, we definitely do have that narrative of like, oh, we're the best, we're the best country in the world. Yeah. It is, like you said, it is a bit of propaganda. I mean, the hope is that we are, that we will rise to the occasion, that we will always bend toward justice, and we will keep working in that direction. And that's the hope, that's the hope everybody has during this era and in past eras, you know, is that eventually it will bend toward what is just rather than what is corrupt. That is kind of a, at the heart of American at least civil movements, social movements. Yeah, but I would say that not everybody wants that. No, of course not. Big, giant business owners don't want that. No. There's always the people in power who don't want to give up their power, too. Right, right. I was just doing this interview that is for a, a totally different foundation that I work for when I'm helping them with a podcast. And I was doing this interview with this woman who runs a group that basically tries to get rights for farm workers down in Texas, which are mostly Mexican immigrants. They're either citizens, they're documented, or they're undocumented, they're the main groups. And they're the ones that are working in the fields to, you know, basically harvest all the food that we eat in this country and ship overseas. And she talks about fighting in the 80s and 90s for the most basic things that we not being farm workers might assume they already have, like the ability to go to the bathroom or a hoe that doesn't make it so that they have to bend over all day, like it's longer, basic things like that. But she does talk about how, from her perspective, as a person who grew up working on the farm with her family, they were out there working and wondering, like, why do these farmers have these giant households and they're spraying us with pesticides and we have nowhere to go to the bathroom? And part of the fight is that, you know, the people who get that money, who get that power, oftentimes don't really want to give it up for safety reasons, for whatever, because they think they deserve it, or they become somehow corrupted or dehumanize the people that aren't at their level. It's interesting. So I don't know. I think it's, that's been happening all along, but it is interesting that Italy is, that the citizens around you in your day-to-day life are just like, eh, well, you know, so be it. Yeah. Do you think that they would like rally for a cause? Like, let's say, you know, they were caging Bangladeshi immigrants. Do you think that Italians would rise up and try to fight that? Or would they just be like, well, you know, they shouldn't have come here anyway? Or or what can I do about it? Or what, you know, what would be the attitude, do you think? Well, it's a bit complicated. First of all, Italians, and they will say this, they'll be the first to say this, they're not a revolutionary people. They're just not. They're not like the French. The French have revolution in their blood. The Italians do not. And they're, they've got a little more of this sort of like, oh, I'm, I'm comfortable right now. I'm not going to make my, myself uncomfortable just to do a revolution. I mean, if you look at what happened in, in France last month, 
the strike that they went through. It was like 36 days or something. You could barely move around the city. You know, there was no metro. You could, it was difficult to get even in and out of the country. The trains, it was just a total nightmare because they were, I don't know the details of it, but there was something about, you know, retirement age and pensions and things like that. And they were just like, no, we're not going to um, allow you to cut our pensions and force us to work until we're 90, you know, or whatever. And they were like, nope, <laughs> nope, no. And Italians, that's just not them. Italians have a different, very different sort of strike. The Italian strike is like, okay, they're in, they announce it like five days before. There's going to be a bus strike. There's going to be a metro and bus strike on Friday. Such and such. It's always a Friday as well. It's like always a Friday because it's like they want the long weekend. <laughs> and they don't like get picket signs and march. They don't. They just stay home. So it's, it's, it's a different thing. So no, they're not revolutionary. I mean, maybe if it was bad enough, like probably any pe people could be pushed if they were pushed enough to have a revolution or to protest or something like that. But it's not that common. But um one thing that they do have down is voting, I think, for, as an outsider. Um, when I became a citizen, after a certain amount of time, I don't remember how much, this voting card just showed up in the mail. Mm -hmm. And I don't even believe that I registered for it. <laughs> it just showed up. And um, it's like a square piece of thick, heavy paper that you can unfold. And it has little squares all over it. And you, you know, put it in a little piece of plastic to keep it safe. And it's got your name on it and your address and, you know, your, like, fiscal code, which is sort of like your social security number. And your voting place is always very close to where you live. There's never like a, oh, they got rid of the voting place in this predominantly immigrant neighborhood. No, it doesn't happen. It, that would be unthinkable to them. So on the one hand, yes, the government is very corrupt and it's accepted by the people. But on the other hand... I mean, maybe it would occur to some people, but it hasn't so far occurred to try to suppress the Italian vote because you just go and, you know, it's at the local school. And if you don't have a car, you could probably get there on foot um, or you could get a bus and it's right there. And you go in. I've never had to wait in line for more than, I don't know, maybe five, ten minutes. You go in, um, you follow the signs to like where you're like you've got a specific number. So let's say it's all the numbers that end between 450 and 700 go in this room. And so you go in the room and there's like three or four people sitting. It's very, very low tech, which is what I love about it. You go in, they check your card, they check your ID. You have to have some form of ID, but Italians have an, a national ID that's, it's like required. So there's never an issue. There's never people who don't have an ID. Everybody has their ID card, which is another issue altogether. But you know, they check your ID to make sure you're the person on the thing, and then they stamp it so that you can't go and vote again, you know, later in the day. So they stamp it, and then they give you your ballot, which is this really big piece of paper folded up six times, and you take it in the little booth, and you just put an X over the person you want to vote for. It's, it's different here. Like, you vote for the party. You have to like look outside on the wall to see who the people, the person is that you're voting into the party. This is the parliamentary system, so you just put a big X on the the party symbol. You fold it up and then you go out of the booth and there's a box with a little slit in it and you just stick it in. It's like so low tech, but I love that and I feel like that is much more trustworthy than some fancy voting machine that might not record your vote right or might get hacked. Or I really do appreciate the Italian um, voting system. But back on the corruption, I just thought of another issue talking to that colleague of mine. I was 
talking to her a couple of weeks ago, and I said, oh, you know, I was trying to explain to her about Mitch McConnell. And I mean, these are characters that if you're not familiar with them, you're never going to get the point across to the you know, to this Italian person you're talking to. But I was trying to explain how, you know, he's the head of the Senate and he's basically gone on TV, this is a few weeks ago, and said he's not going to do an impartial trial. And I was like, but he vows he has to make an oath. And she just rolls her eyes. Like an oath. What does that mean? It means nothing. And I think I said the same thing about, you know, I remember saying to her one time, well, you know, even if, because, you know, they know, the Italians know enough to know, like they get the basic news. They get the like, oh, there's going to be impeachment, but the, the Republicans are definitely going to acquit Trump. So like they got that much. And she said, oh, yeah, I saw that they started the, the House did the articles of impeachment, but the, the Republicans aren't going to, what's the point? She's like, I don't understand. What's the point of doing it? And I said, well, because the Congress, they made a vow to, uh, they made an oath to uphold the Constitution. So it's their duty. And she just like laughed at me because she's like, yeah, what? That's their oath that they made when they, you know, their oath of office, please. Like, don't be naive. Their oath of office to the Constitution, please. Go have a coffee, take a nap. No, more like grow up, like grow up. You really think that these politicians care about their oath of office? And that to me is a shock. It's like, well, mm. well, of course they do, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think that part of it, I mean, it's interesting too, like uh, if you look at, at corruption in a different way, that's not these huge issues of state, but like, if you look at, say, Harvey Weinstein and all the sexual assault and rape that he did, and then you look at Berlusconi, who threw these giant rich people sex parties, at least according to rumor, I was never invited to any of them, so I don't know firsthand. <laughs> and, and people sort of laughed at him as this weird playboy character, whereas I think that people swept Harvey Weinstein's behavior under the rug, but I don't think that people celebrated him in the same way. And I think that because we come from a kind of a, a moralistic background as a society, like we are born out of the Puritans. And, you know, if we find out that somebody who's running for office is currently cheating on their spouse, all of a sudden that person needs to resign in shame. Where I feel like maybe in Italy, sure, we might be like, oh, but you know, she's cheating on her spouse. But you know, I still kind of like her. Is that true? Or, or, uh, I think that's true. I think that the second half of your comment is true. I do think that like marital indiscretion affairs, participating in prostitution, these kinds of generally not illegal things. Yes, they're not a big deal. However, uh, I think Harvey Weinstein is a different breed of animal. I think he's definitely a different breed of animal than Berlusconi. Like Berlusconi... Yeah, probably a bad analogy there. My bad. Yeah, I don't think that's quite right because I, I think that Berlusconi was a total, you know, I don't know, how would you call it? Like a total womanizer, a philanderer. And he definitely went to prostitutes and maybe even an underage prostitute, which I'm definitely not on board with. So I'm not trying to make excuses for Berlusconi by any means. But I do feel like everything that he was involved with was consensual. And I don't know of any, and I could be mistaken, but I don't know of anyone who's ever claimed that they were assaulted by him or even like harassed by him. I think he was more of like, you know, 
if I can get it, I'll get it. Or if I can't get it for free, I'll pay for it. But yeah. Uh, whereas Harvey Weinstein, I think, was a much more of a uh, of a predator. Yes. So certainly. Um, but I do think that that Puritan thing is real for Americans. Otherwise, that Bill Clinton thing would never have happened. Did the Me Too movement ripple across to Italy? Did that have any effect over there to society? I think it had a little bit of an effect, but not as much. I mean, it wasn't the huge catalyst that it was in the United States. But, you know, definitely people talked about it. I feel like there's definitely more of an anything goes attitude in Italian, an Italian office, for example. Like, I don't see people being really careful about what they say. My bosses, I have two male bosses, and one of them in particular has said, it wasn't directed towards me or anyone in the office, but he, he will occasionally make like sexual comments. Just things that like, you know, an American would be in this day and age, like very careful about and scared that they like they might be crossing a line, even if they didn't mean to. And there's a little bit more, you know, of this sort of, I don't want to say PC because I'm not anti-PC, but it is a little bit, oh my God, I got it. Is that okay to say? Is that not okay to say? And so here, I think that, that there's less of an issue with that. But on the other hand, I think that there's, I don't know, I, I'd like to think there's less of the culture of harassment, like real, true harassment, grabbing people or, you know, assaulting them or coercing them if they're in a position of less power than you. I'm sure it happens, but I'd like to think it doesn't happen quite as much. And sort of that's why the odd sexual comment that's just a joke it flies a little bit because the other stuff isn't happening. But that's just my perception. I've only ever worked in one Italian office. Yeah, we're in a state of correction. When the Me Too movement first happened, some would say in a state of overcorrection, we're very much in that spot where y you could lose your job. And so people are more cautious. I don't think that when I came up in the working world that we were cautious about saying things that were inappropriate at times, certainly. And and I think that there was definitely a, a dynamic of an, an interplay between the two sexes that was going on in, in the office place. And I think that that's probably pretty common in everybody's experience in the working world. I, I wouldn't say that that means that it's correct. And we're kind of correcting for some of the imbalance right now. But it remains to be seen how it will shake out, um, hopefully in a very good way. Uh, so to end, how do you feel living in a corrupt, somewhat corrupt place, but where people are sort of chill about it versus a corrupt place where people are up in arms about it? <laughs> uh, I think you should be up in arms about it. I, I hope I still do have that, that idealistic American spirit. So no, I don't think you should ever become complacent about something like corruption because it's bad. It's a bad thing. It's ruined Italy. I mean, I don't want to say that Italy's ruined, but I mean, every time you complain about the typical things you complain about in Italy, oh, the bureaucracy or oh, like the infrastructure, infrastructure, you know, the metro, the, you know, these things don't work. The streets flood every time it rains because the drains aren't taken care of or whatever it is, all these horrible, you know, these things that make, make the city unlivable, they can almost always be traced back to corruption, you know? Oh, the mafia was involved in this building project and they used cheap materials so that they could make a whole bunch of money and that's why the bridge collapsed, collapsed and 300 people died. That's a big example but there's smaller examples too and why does it take me three hours to get something done at the local city hall? Because 
all the people working there got their jobs to their parents and they weren't qualified. You know, it's all stuff like that. So I think corruption is really bad. It can really make a wonderful, beautiful, rich, culturally particularly amazing place like Italy an un almost unlivable place. And it's, it's sad, and I don't want that to happen to my country. I mean, Italy's my country too now, but, you know, my home country. Yeah. It's so tricky too, though, because you know how I feel about social media. But I do think that there's also this tendency of now we have this very much call it out culture where I have perceived that you have done something wrong and so I'm going to shame you in public. Or more than likely, I'm going to pile on the other people who are already shaming you. And so there's this culture of like, for shame, for shame. And I can raise a mob to tear you apart at the drop of a hat if I have a strong Twitter account. But so much of that vitriol and the kind of fighting against corruption, I put in quotes, is uninformed, piling on to just rumors. Everybody's so tense and vitriolic. They're indignant, too. Like, yeah. people just, they are, cannot wait to get indignant about something. Exactly. And it's totally unproductive. That's true. You know, yes, it ruins people's lives and hurts people's feelings, um, but it's totally unproductive. Like what they should be doing is if they're worried about corruption, they should be, for instance, supporting the news organizations that have the resources and the in smart investigative reporters that can dig it out and prove it and like throw it into like the public sphere in a way that will cause prosecution and not pile on on Twitter. It's completely useless. And meanwhile, we're just sort of thinking like, oh, no, I should get my news for free. And oh, why is nobody investigating this stuff? It's like uh, they have no money and investigative reporters cost hundreds of thousands of dollars because it takes so long to get a real story and fact check it and get it out into the world and the lawyers and all this other stuff. So support your local paper, people. I mean, that's just like one example, but I'm just saying, yeah, we can be so worried about corruption, but I'm so sick of people like just spouting off their opinions without doing any research and thinking that somehow their opinion or their shaming helps change things. And I think it does sometimes, like in the Me Too movement, the shaming took down a lot of people, but it wasn't really like action. One of my friends says, you know, back in the day, we used to just mutter this stuff in the grocery line to ourselves. <laughs> you, know, you would hear something, a rumor about something, and you'd be like, oh, I don't like that at all. But now you're just like, I'm going to take to my platform and tell my fans that, you know, they should hate all of this stuff. I think it depends, Katie. Like so many things, it has two sides to it. Because I think it gets very easy to feel disenfranchised as a consumer and to feel like you have no voice. And when you get treated like garbage by you know, an airline, for example, it's very easy to feel totally, like I'm just a bug to them, you know? I'm just one of millions and millions and millions of customers that they have. I can call and I can complain, but they're not gonna care. And maybe it's something bad. Maybe you, you know, you got treated horribly and got hurt or you got, you know, not some, maybe something you could sue over, but maybe you missed your sister's wedding from a fault, you know, and you can't do anything about it. And yet, you know, you see people on Twitter, they call out the airlines and they say, you did this to me. And the other night was this date and this is, and I have a picture and da, da, da. They take it seriously now. That's true. I just think you have to be careful. You know, I mean, it can get abused. It's, you know, you were saying we were correcting, self-correcting, over-correcting. 
it's not like every single little thing you gave me you know you put too much salt on my okay, no that's <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's going too far yeah but other things I think it's great that that there's a little bit more accountability on behalf of these big companies that before didn't have any like you said it's you said about muttering in the grocery line there are some things that we shouldn't have to mutter in the grocery line about like if I get sexually assaulted uh, because I'm trying to pursue a career in which all of the people in power are men I shouldn't have to mutter about that in the grocery line I should be able to be open and, and honest about it and people should know no I, I and I agree with that but what I mean is the muttering if people think oh well she was just dressed like a slut and was trying to work her way up the ladder that's what they should mutter in the grocery line uh, keep it to yourself or that's right she shouldn't have been sexually assaulted in some cases you don't really need to say it that's one of the problems with social media particularly when you're following advice that says something like oh to be relevant you need to tweet 15 times a day oh lord help it's, us it's making it so that people aren't thinking before they talk in some cases, I feel, or they're just piling on to an issue just because they're like, yeah, that from a trigger standpoint, that seems like it's wrong to me without actually taking a, the time to look at it. Yeah, let's not even get into triggering. That's just... Yeah, I know. We should probably leave it there because, you know, we could talk in circles around this because, yeah, it's good and bad. It's good and bad. Going off on a tangent. Yeah. Yeah, I got to stop talking about social media. Follow us on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, our Twitter account. We tweet at least 15 times a day. <laughs> no, we no don't. actually, we tweet once a day. <laughs> uh, Maybe twice if something yes. interesting happens. <laughs> you can find us on social media. Just search for the Bittersweet Life podcast. In general, I think that we try to put positive things out there. Of course. For the most part. Of course we do. Katie will post pictures of animals sometimes. Occasionally. I've been told to not do it. But, you know, if there's a tap dancing duck, <laughs> I'm putting it out there. People love that stuff. I got to say. And and I will say if Tiffany sounds a little bit weird, it's because we had a catastrophic failure of our recording system in Rome. And Tiffany is recording on one of those little voice box thing, like little pocket recorders, one of those little tiny silver recorders, which we've plugged a mic into, but as a result, she sounds a little wonky. So if you want us to sound better, remember, we are on Patreon, uh, <laughs> patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. We will be trying to order Tiffany something new ASAP, but we do need support from those of you who love this show to do that. So support us on Patreon or visit the donate button at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Yes, to find us at Patreon, it's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. But these links are all in our show notes. Yes. And until next time. Try not to get corrupted over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll try. I will try. Yeah. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Really quick before we're gone, gone, I wanted to give a thank you to a few of you who are supporting the show. Some of you on Patreon and some of you through the donate button and PayPal. First, I want to thank Monica and then you, John, for being there all these many years. Giovanna for just recently donating. Craig, Valerie, Tamara, Sue, Steve, and Julie, who is our newest supporter on Patreon. Thank you, Julie. We do have a goal of reaching $1,000 a month on Patreon to help us pay our bills and also be able to pay some of our expenses and the time back that it takes to make this show. 
if everyone listening right now pledged $5 or more, we would be there in the blink of an eye. If you love the show, support it. Visit us on Patreon or through PayPal. There are links in the show notes. If you can't afford to pay anything, write us a good review and spread the word to your friends. We appreciate anything you do to help this show grow and thrive and survive into another year. Join us again. Bye. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.